Anyway, we uh, thank the Lord that we have the opportunity to uh, come and praise and worship Him today, for that's what it's about. We all have uh, heard the stories of uh, little girls being molested by their father, uh, uncles, cousins, next door neighbors. We've heard those stories go on and on and down through the years it seems to mount even more and more. It's, uh, it's not unusual anymore. It's a terrible thing. But usually what happens to most of those girls is they say, well, if that's what happens, then what I'm going to do is make a living out of it. And they become porn stars uh, and other things, uh, of course. And they become parts of part of brothels and terrible stories to hear. That's what's going on in our society. has been going on for many years, many centuries, but it seems to be more and more heard of in our time. And what happens is those ladies can't even stand the life that they do, so they have to take drugs, heroin, all the heavy stuff to be able to do it. They become alcoholics, of course. Their lives are destroyed. And if you were to ask them really what was really in the heart, if they would be able to tell you, they would feel very dirty, defiled, worthless. They would tell you that they are unclean, that they're filthy. And it's like, how would you approach somebody who has had that kind of lifestyle, would you come up and say, God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life? Is that how we would start with that? I don't think so. You could actually look in Exodus 29 and find the answer to their lives. It's shameful. It's dirty, but the thing is, regardless of what has been our actions and our lifestyle, we're still dirty and filthy ourselves and despicable. We were in bondage, weren't we? The reason I tell that that kind of story is that's what's going on out there in, in our world. People are hurting. The purpose of the Exodus just wasn't meant by God to bring God's people into uh, just freedom, even though that's good. But it was to bring them into a covenant relationship with Him so they could truly worship Him. I mean, that is the life. And He's going to teach them how to worship Him because they came from such a dirty, despicable kind of lifestyle because they were forced to be in that. But He's going to give them the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood to begin to show how they can approach this holy, majestic God. Now, we are in an extended section of Exodus. The last third of it is really about worship, isn't it? That's really what we're focused on here. And God teaches them that He wants to dwell in their very presence. 
something that they can kind of see in a way. He is to be approached upon His terms. Not in any other kind of methods that they may like to think of. God gives details. He gives a prescription on how they shall do it. So, they can give glory to this great God. Now, last week in chapter 28, and it probably seems like it's going on forever as we go through the tabernacle and now we're looking at the priest and and their clothing, but it's very important because it's going to show how the garments of the priest are to bring forth the glory and the beauty of the Lord the people will actually see with their eyes something that is extending beyond that into the spiritual realm that God is a God of beauty. So for the priests to enter into this worship themselves, it starts with them, they have to have garments. And that's what we looked at last week. But there's something else. They can't just put those garments on as they bring forth who the great high priest is. They have to be robed in the very character of God, the righteousness of God. He is the one of glory. He is the one of holiness. And He is the one of beauty. They are to reflect this glory and beauty. But they have to be cleansed before they put on the garments. And that is the way it is with us. We had to be cleansed. Then the robes of righteousness were put on us. And then we show forth the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. For we are priests today. We are the uh, fulfillment of that in a sense. Of course, the great high priest is Christ. So this is where chapter 29 now comes in. It fits in with chapter 28. And if we could have, we would have done 29 with 28 last week. But as I look at uh, the amount of verses in each of these chapters, I said, that's impossible. (laughs) We'll uh, take them a chapter a week here. But anyway, the priests are to be removed from the ordinary way of life. They're not ordinary. They They exclusively belong to God for His service. That's all they're going to do from here on out. They were called to be holy as all the objects of the tabernacle are called to be holy. So I would say that God is a holy God and He is radically different from all of mankind and He's radically different from this whole fallen world, isn't He? So He has to make special provision that He can dwell in the midst of His people. And that's why he goes to the extremes. And that's why he keeps, let's say, repeating it in different ways so that they can understand here's where they came from, here's who God is, and here's what God is really doing. So the priests have to be prepared first before they can put on those robes and then serve God. They are mediators. That's what they're going to be. But the mediators need a mediator. Right? So to be clothed with that righteousness, they need to be cleansed of unrighteousness. The robes of righteousness, we looked at last week, but they have to be cleansed of unrighteousness. So they need a sacrifice for atonement. And we know that's pointing to Jesus Christ in the future to them. 
But in the meantime, he's going to use sacrifices of animals. Matter of fact, they are going to be dunked in the water here, the priests are, completely washed before they are girded with these great clothes. Now this is the climax of what has already gone before, what we were looking at last week. Let's look at this ritual. And that's what it is. It's a ritual, but it relates to cleansing and purifying spiritually. And it relates to us as we are to be purified, as we are to be cleansed. So we'll take the first nine verses and we'll look at the need for cleansing. These priests need to be cleansed, don't they? Let's read some of these verses. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priest. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, you shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Now the first nine verses give us what the rest of the chapter is about. gives us a good summary. And I know if you did daily reading, you'd read through this and you'd go, what did I just read? How many times have you read Exodus? How many times have you read this and then gone into Leviticus and say, sorry, Lord, I don't get it. I'm going to move on a little bit. Has that happened before? Don't feel guilty. But that's why, you know, we're going to we look at it a little more intricately than maybe we would if we were just reading it. Hopefully, this does bring meaning to us because it is the answer to all those young ladies who've been abused. It is the answer to all the drug addicts. It's the answer to the alcoholics. It's the answer to all the people in in prison, whether that be in spiritual prison or behind bars. This is where it's at. You say, well, this is not a chapter I would take them to. (laughs) But you might think differently after it's over. Uh, Anyway, God is directing the priest to be consecrated. He's ordaining them here. This is a ritual. He's showing them, you need to be cleansed. God is the one doing this. He's the one ordaining, isn't He? There is nobody but Him doing that. He's the one who picks out the servants that He does. Now, there are different offerings here. There's one offering that is of a a bull. It starts off with that. And that represents the sin offering. Then you'll see that there is a ram. And that's representing the burnt offering. And then there is a third animal. And that's another ram. What's going on here? And that's dealing with consecrating. So you have a a bull, a ram, and a ram. You have a sin offering, a burnt offering, 
consecrating offering. And if you look in verse 4, you'll see that it talks about washing them with water. There's a labor there after you have that great big altar where the animals are sacrificed. Then the priests do the work after that. They need to be cleansed there. They would do that constantly as they would uh, do their tabernacle work. Well, there is an initial washing that happens here. And the idea here is that... uh, it's, it's like a baptism. When uh, There's a spiritual baptism that happens to all of us when we become Christians. We become baptized into Christ, don't we? We have been baptized into Him. That's a one-time thing that's happening. We don't get baptized every week, do we? We don't do that kind of ritual before we come to church or after and have some kind of water that we pour over somebody or dunk them or anything, right? We, we don't do that because it has to be just done once. Well, this one-time cleansing here uh, in the consecration happens to the priest. Now, they'll be washed. I mean, they'll wash their hands and their feet. But this time, it's a baptism. They get dunked or whatever. The water is all over them. And that's representing a new covenant priesthood. Although that was old covenant there, it's pointing to a new covenant. It emphasizes the need for cleansing. They have sin. And have you ever noticed the different images that you see of sin in the Bible? In Isaiah 1, 4-6, through it talks about a disease. Sin is a disease. In 1 John 1, 5-10, it talks about darkness. Sin is darkness. Sin is a disease. In um, Psalm 130, sin is like drowning. In Ephesians 2.1, sin is like what? Death. You're dead in your sins. So when Aaron and his sons, who are going to be the priests, they were washed all over. It was symbolic of the complete cleansing of the Lord. That's what happens at salvation. We are completely cleansed. They didn't have to be bathed all over again. All they have to do is clean their hands and the feet in the labor as they do their service. In John 13.10, Jesus speaks about this as He's washing the disciples' feet. Do you remember that? And, of course, Peter didn't want anybody to wash his feet. Don't wash my feet. This is a humbling thing, isn't it? This is a perfect picture of humility as Jesus is washing their feet. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jantered answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Of course, Peter then says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas there. He says, you're already clean. That has already happened. It's already happened. We just need to have a cleansing of the feet. That's another symbolism that's going on. Now, back to your Exodus. We've already moved down to verse 7 talks about uh, the ephod and the breastplate and we kind of talked about that last week and the holy crown where it says holiness to the Lord that's put on Aaron and it talks about bringing the uh, sons in putting tunics on them now uh, as we look in verse 
7, he says, you'll take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Speaking Moses to Aaron. This is an anointing. The oil here is associated with Mashiach, Messiah. Whenever you would speak of the anointing, it's pointing to the Messiah. The anointing to the Messiah was as a prophet. That's one office. What's the next one? Priest. And he is also anointed as king. The anointed one or the Messiah. And so, that's what the people thought of all through the Old Testament time period. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. He is the one who's anointed. You'd always use oil to anoint those particular offices to show they come in. Uh, if you were from the priestly family, uh, Levitical family, you can only be a priest. If you were from the tribe of Judah, you can only be a king. You couldn't be a priest. And of course, the prophets did their thing. They were prophets. They weren't priests or they weren't kings. But this one has a threefold office to fulfill all of those. So it's a visible marker that God has chosen them as the anointing of the oil comes on them. God had granted them the Holy Spirit. The oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. They had the Holy Spirit to carry out the duties that they did, power and service that they had. If you look in Isaiah chapter 61, it speaks about the anointing of Jesus, the one we know in the New Testament. right? But in Isaiah, it was talking about the coming one, Jesus, the Messiah. It says in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To preach good tidings to the poor. They have hope. They have good news offered to them. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. How about those people who are just broken? That's the good news. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He is the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Him to proclaim the good news. The Gospel. Now, that's the need for a cleansing, isn't it? They have a need for a cleansing and it's going to happen. Verses 10-14 through is that they need a representative. Let's read 10 through 14 back in Exodus 29. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Okay, now we get the sin offering. The sin offering. This is the bull. And you read these details and you go, what's going on here? Well, they're at, uh, at, in the tabernacle. This is what's going to happen as they go on. The priest need a representative before God because of their sin. They just can't walk in there and start doing sacrifices 
or not do sacrifices, just try to worship God. They can't do that. They're human. And just like every other human being in that camp, they needed to have their sin atoned for. There's been a cleansing. Now there's a sin that has to be atoned for. If we have any animal rights activists here, I don't think we do. (laughs) You know, those guys, uh, they would probably be yelling and screaming at what we are just reading and talking about. It gets a little ugly from here. (laughs) This is not pretty. Because there's killing of animals. Not only for the priest, but later on it's going to be every day. So... The killing is for the benefit of man. There's going to be blood that is going to be shed. And for all the people who are weak at heart, you might have trouble with all this blood being around, but this is a serious thing. You have to see that blood. By by putting your hands on the head of that bull, first of all, there's identification. The bull is not a sinner, but you are. And you're taking your sinful acts and your nature and you're putting it on there to that bull who is perfectly innocent and your sins are symbolically transferred to this innocent bull. You're seeing this for the first time here as a priest. And you're recognizing... Oh, you mean I just can't worship God? I have to take my sins and put it on this innocent bull? The bull was perfect. The bull was innocent. That's identification. He takes your sins. Now, the second term we use here is substitution. He's taking your place. All these kind of run together. But there is this animal that takes the sin that's sacrificed in the place of you. The bull is the substitute. So all through Exodus, the priest cannot go into the tent of tabernacle until the sacrifice is made. There has, and there had to be a washing that happened before that. There has to be a purification of the blood all of these things. Now, the blood is, uh, is going to be spilled out. They're going to uh, put that on the horns of the altar and go inside the tabernacle. Uh, it has to be applied. It's a setting apart here is what's involved. The bull is slaughtered for atonement. God is going to be satisfied with this. And, and even the altar is going to be purified. Even the altar. So the priest needs forgiveness... And the altar needs to be consecrated. That's why we're putting this blood on even it. We're dealing with the sin offering, right? Okay, you'll notice something interesting all the way down into verse 13 now when it talks about the liver and the kidneys. And you go, what's this? Burn them up. Burn them up. In this sin offering, burn them up. Okay, to us that doesn't mean anything. But if you were a pagan... That would mean something because these particular organs would be used for divination to find out the will of the gods. That's what they use these particular parts for. Sell them off in the black market or something, I guess, huh? But here he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to sacrifice. Matter of fact, I want you to go ahead and burn those up. Don't be like the pagans. But there's something on this bull offering that you don't burn up. And it's found in verse 14. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal burn with fire outside the camp. You don't burn it up there on the altar. You take it out. Get rid of that. That's the waste parts. That's the flesh. That's the skin. Outside the camp. And this represented what it means to violate the covenant. It has to be taken out. It's no good for sacrifice for this sin offering. If we were to look in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 4 through 6, here you have a poor leper who cannot stay in the camp. If the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and its hair has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore appears to be as it was and the sore is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. Then the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore has faded and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only a scab and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab... Should it all spread over the skin after he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. If the priest sees that the scab is indeed spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. Now what's, what's happening here? When, when leprosy breaks out, as you see on through here, they have to put him outside the camp to get him away. Matter of fact, in Jesus' time, we know that the lepers would have to yell out, Unclean! Unclean! That means, stay away from me. You don't want any contamination. You don't want leprosy to spread to somebody else. Uh, this disease. Anyway, they were to, to stay away. And that is what is talking about as far as violating the covenant. You cannot have uh, that kind of uh, thing uh, in the midst of the camp. Uh, Nadab and Abihu were, uh, they actually did something against the covenant. They violated it. They were taken outside the camp. They were killed. They deserve being cut off. That's what's happening. When Christ took our sin, where was He crucified at? Outside the camp. Because He had the sin on Him, even though there was no sin that He had ever done, the sin that He took was now a violation of the covenant. He had to be taken out. If we look in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, we'll see why. He was out there. And theologically, it's rather incredible how it works out. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered outside the gate. 
And He tells us we're to go to Him. Therefore, let us go forth to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach, for here we have no contending city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer sacrifice to praise to God. We are the priests. We do that. He went outside and uh, He bore our sins. We place our hands or we identify with Christ because we, trans- we had our sins transferred from us to Him and there alone is where we find our forgiveness. That is where it's found. Look in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible about the atonement. 53, starting at verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. There's where the sin went. Look at Matthew 26, 28. Lord's Supper is being instituted by Christ. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it. Verse 28. For this is My blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Isaiah 53 was talking about the remission of sins. That had to be put on Him. That's forgiveness. The sins are taken away. It's shed for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That should be a famous verse also. For He made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So there's where we find our forgiveness. So now we've seen that they have a need of a cleansing, They have a need of a representative. Have we seen the representative? It's that bull, which is the sin offering. Now, 15 through 18, we go back to our Exodus 29. And this is the entreating for mercy. Okay, here's a ram. You shall also take one ram. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Okay, this is the first ram. And the sacrifice of the ram is a burnt offering. Everything is to be burnt. Do you remember the bull? Although most things were burnt there, the skin and uh, flesh were taken outside the camp. This time, the ram, everything is going to be burnt. Some of the waste parts are going to be burnt. Now, on this burnt offering, 
we're talking about everything is to be offered up. Are you catching the significance here? In Romans 12.1, Paul borrowed right from this text. Now, he doesn't necessarily quote that, but he was very familiar with the sacrificial system, wasn't he? Paul was a Jew of Jews. He knew full well what that was about. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that's why we're putting this on our outline, the entreating for mercy, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He takes from what the priestly act was and he says, now, here's where it's fulfilled because of the mercy of God. You present everything that you are. Your bodies, your mind, your spirit, I mean everything. And it's not a dead sacrifice, one that's going to be killed. It's a living sacrifice, Paul says. It's set apart, it's holy, it's acceptable. And it's for reasonable service or the priestly duties there. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have you been in the Word this week? Have you been renewing your mind? Do you do it? Do you study it diligently? That's the only way that you can do your priestly duties. If you're not offering up your mind, you're not offering up anything. The mind, the body, the spirit, everything is what He wants. Because we want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, He says, I beseech you, God wants us to present everything. We can give all because God the Father gave His Son. He bought us. He owns us. So we just give all back to Him for that is our spiritual service of worship. This is what the priests were expected to do. To devote themselves. This is dealing with devotion. A complete devotion to God. That's what this ram sacrifice is about. It's a burnt offering that's saying, I'm going to devote everything to you, God. That's what you said when you first became a Christian. And that's what we have to continually say every day. I'm all yours. Everything, whatever you want, it's yours. Do you know what this meant for the priest? That's what they did. No vacations. No days off. Seven days a week they sacrificed. They did their priestly duties. They gave of themselves completely everything that the Lord wanted. Wholeheartedly. Look in 1 Timothy 4.15. This is what the Christian life is about. It is a cost, isn't it? Can you give everything of yourself to Him because He gave His Son for us? Paul tells young Timothy, the pastor, this. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. 
that your progress may be evident to all. He says, take heed to yourself, your actions, and your doctrine. That's everything, isn't it? Take heed to your life and your doctrine. Doctrine is so important because what you believe is going to define how you live, how you think. What you believe is going to flesh out in what you do. It's eventually going to show. So be careful. Take heed to what you believe. Take this doctrine and then live that out. So there's one ram. Want to go to the second ram? Here's the third offering now. This uh, starts at verse 19. This is interesting. As you read through here. We're in a ritual, but we're transferring this over and seeing the meaning that it's heading for eventually. You shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall be put their hands on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand and on their big toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And also you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, here's where we have the branding and blood. This is an ordination that we're doing. The blood of the second ram is going to be applied. It's even going to be put on their ears, their toes, or their thumbs and their toes. And it symbolizes that the priest would hear God, that would do the work of God, and walk in the way of God from head to foot. All of you. That is the idea of this anointing here. After hearing the Word of God, the hands, after hearing the Word of God, the hands, and the feet are to be swift to obey. And that's the idea. If you look back in Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, we've covered this before. Here is where I, why we say it's a branding of blood. This is about a slave who decides he wants to stay with his master. He has the right to go free, but he says, no, I want to give my life to my master from here on out. I will continue to serve him. It says in verse 6, Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. A piercing of the ear. He's marked. He did that voluntarily. 
but, but he's marked there to the, to the Master for life. So as we hear the Word of God, we also want to do it and walk in that. And so therefore, He is Master. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are bond servants. And that's what this is representing here. We are to offer perpetual service to our Lord. The principle of necessity here. There has to be blood shed. In Hebrews 9.22 it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So we've seen blood all over the place, haven't we? We've seen blood from the bull, from the ram, now another ram. It's constantly blood, blood atonement, forgiveness of sins. Interesting, as he goes into this third offering, it turns into uh, actually a wave offering. And what that means, we don't really know for sure, but you wave it before the Lord. It's a symbolic of act of where you have the breast of the ram and the thigh. It's to be part of this wave offering along with the bread, with cake and oil. And you wave it before the Lord. Because what's going to happen is you're going to enter into a communion dinner with Him. That's where it's heading into. After you've been washed, and then the sin offering, which takes away your sin, and the burnt offering, which actually is uh, saying, I'm devoting myself devotion, then you're now consecrated right on into the aspect of having communion with Him. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? Look in verse 29 and 30. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be His sons after Him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. This whole ordination before they get things underway was seven days long. Seven can mean completion. Seven deals with the whole creation story. Six days God created. Seventh day He rested. Anyway, this is that time period. The anointing is given to the priest the spiritual sacrifices here, they're, they're actually real sacrifices, but you can see the spirituality here. The negative side is that there is a removal of sin being taken away. Now you have the anointing of oil, which is the positive side, which means the imparting of holiness. That's what the oil is representing here. Sin is taken away. Holiness is brought forth to the priest here. And we get into verse 31 through 34. Here's the covenant meal. This is beautiful. After you've had baptism, that's an ordinance. We have that word ordinance, don't we, in the church today? Baptism. The ordinance of baptism. You only do that once. But there's a communion which we do often. Do it many times. And that is what this is illustrating. After the ordaining ceremony, the ram and the bread was to be eaten. Remember the bread and the cake, the oil there? It's to be shared 
with God. I think that's quite incredible. We didn't read this yet, did we? 31. You should take the ram of the consecration. See, here's the consecration. Boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram. We didn't have that in the sin offering, did we? We did not have that in the burnt offering, did we? The consecration offering is a different story. They're going to eat the flesh of the ram, the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things which with the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they're holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Alright? This is easy to see, I think. We, uh, we relate this to uh, a communion. They're actually eating here uh, of the animal. There's been a sacrifice. There's been purification here. We have a symbolic baptism. We have a symbolic communion that we take. It represents our cleansing. And when one is cleansed, then they have fellowship with God, which is ever ongoing. <coughs> All the believers, they take of the Lord's Supper. So those two ordinances can be seen right here. Do you see them? I think it's rather incredible. Those ordinances of the Old Testament picture what it was to be like in the time that we live right now. Get that. And we are the priests that are partaking with other priests and with the Lord being in our presence. Wow. That'd be a great text to use for a communion service, would it not? I don't know if very many people ever go there. <laughs> thirty-five through thirty-seven is the altar is atoned and the priest. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them, and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. Now this is quite a message to be dealing with on the first day where the time changes. <laughs> because you could easily go to sleep and I'm amazed at you guys. You're all awake. You're still hanging with it. Zach's back there shaking his head. No. <laughs> we are wide awake, aren't we? And here we are into some intricate details about atonement for uh, an, an altar of all things. You know, what are you talking about? What's this mean to me? Now, the altar has to be purified. I've kind of already said that. Why is it? Well, the problem is, is that the altar was made with sinful hands. <coughs> sinful human being touched this altar and made it. And it has to serve as the perfect place for atonement. The perfect animals without spots or blemishes are to come up, uh, to be brought up to the altar. The altar has to be place of atonement. It has to be perfect too. Jesus is our sacrifice, but Jesus is our altar also. We don't have an altar here. Protestant churches don't have altars or shouldn't have them. They call on that today within the last 100 years or so, 150 or so. Probably by the way of Finney and some of the other guys who started with the altar call, which really 
is not scriptural. You'll not see it. It was not practiced in the early church. It was not done throughout Scripture. You'll never see anything dealing with an altar at the church. People want to call that fine, but it's not really biblical. I would rather stay with biblical terms and not try to make things that are not. Um, Christ is working on a heart that's just awesome, that's great, you can do that, but I don't think anybody should be coerced into that where you have 15 stanzas of just as I am, which I heard for years and years all my life, and I thought that's the way it's supposed to be. We'll, we will stay here until somebody walks the aisle. I've heard pastors and evangelists say that. And eventually you'd have some little kid come up there and walk the aisle on the 13th verse where everybody could go home. Or is that the way around? As long as people are coming, they'll keep it going. Just as I am. Without one plea. Good song. <laughs> but it uh, is forcing a th- something on somebody that doesn't have to be. Think about it. Sometimes we bring in tradition. Where do we get some of the things that we do as we practice in the church today? Where do we get that biblically if something was not ever practiced historically in the church and all of a sudden it pops up? Am I against somebody showing that they have been saved because of the Word of God that day? No. But I tell you what would be really good if somebody came up to somebody, either the pastor or somebody in the church, afterwards if they had questions or say, hey, I think the Lord just came to my heart. I think the Lord is doing a change in my life. That's fantastic. At least we don't have to force them, though, to do that. Where they'll feel bad. And they do something that really eventually, within two or three days later, two or three weeks later, all of a sudden, they've lost their interest. At the time, the emotions got to them. It wasn't necessarily the Word of God that convicted them, but what happened? The emotions. And emotions are not to dominate. And so, I know full well what all that is about. And I was a part of it for many, many years. I'm not condemning it. I'm just saying that sometimes I think it's overdone. And it was started by Finney, who um, really I have a lot of problems with the way that he offered the gospel. Find out many years later, uh, Finney even admitted that almost all of the people that were so-called saved had gone back to the lifestyle that they once had. They had an emotional event in their life, but it never changed. Well, what does this all lead up to? By the way, I didn't even intend to bring that out. Sorry to bring that on. <laughs> it was about the altar, wasn't it? See, it, the altar is Christ. There's a seven-day consecration, which means a completeness. There, you know, This is a complete thing that's happened. We finish out here on the daily offerings that are to happen. Starting at verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Here's what they're going to do after they get this all kicked into gear. Two lambs. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it grain offering and the drink offering, as in the morning, for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. 
And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I will be your God. Here's what I want you to do every day. Sacrifice a lamb in the morning. Sacrifice one in the evening. This is the heart of the covenant that God is bringing forth to them. It was by His own good pleasure that He would meet with His people. God has done all this, hasn't He? These lambs of sacrifices daily, it's perpetual, it's continual to be in the presence of God there. It's acceptable to God. This is what He wants. It was something that was perpetual until there would be a permanent sacrifice that would complete it. Daily sacrifice. That's the heart of the law. You have to do that. If you think of the Roman church, they have to continually offer up sacrifices of the Mass. It's perpetual. It's all day long. Right now, it's being done. A few hours from now, it will still be done. All across the world, there's a sacrifice that is happening. The problem is what does that have to do with the one perfect sacrifice that Jesus Christ did? They will say their sacrifice is unbloody. Jesus was the bloody and there's the unbloody. And they'll call that communion. The only thing is, is that communion, sacrifice, it's Jesus Christ. It's a one-time thing. It had to be devastating to a Jew whenever they couldn't get their sacrifices done. In the book of Daniel... Daniel prophesied of a sacrifice that would be taken away by a picture of the Antichrist that would be in the future, Antiochus Epiphanes, who walked into the temple, took their sacrifices away. He just obliterated, made, made fun of it and everything else. That would have been terrifying because now, how do you get your sins taken away? That's what they've been taught. Every day that has to be done. Here's the question. How do I get my sin taken away? I would ask that to a priest because when you go to a priest, that's how you get your sin taken away when you confess your sin. It's called confession. And so you do that. You also go to the sacrifice of the Mass. You get your sin taken away there until your next sin. And then you get it taken away there. And then you keep doing that. It's a perpetual. You can see why there has to be a sacrifice of the Mass. It is the whole foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. So you take away the sacrifice of the Mass, you've obliterated a whole theology. The whole surrounding of it. That is how you get Christ in you. That's how you get your sins taken away. And what I ask is, what happened at the cross? Was that only symbolic? Well, they'll say it started it. But we, we keep on doing it. 
the little boy asked the rabbi. You know what happened in 70 AD, don't you? The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. You take away the temple, you take away the sacrifices. They've not had any sacrifices since. How do they get their sins taken away if they don't trust in the Messiah? Well, they don't. They have a system. Judaism is a system that has been obliterated. But they still practice these things. But they don't do the heart of what it's about. The, the sacrifices. And they, they can't. So the boy asked the rabbi, how do I get my sins forgiven today? You know what the rabbi said? Nothing. He couldn't answer. Is that sad? How do they get their sins taken away? So whether it's some Eastern religion doing their sacrifice of whatever that may be, whether it be Roman Catholicism, how do they really get their sin taken away? They have the wrong answer. Was it done once by the person of Christ as it says in Hebrews? There has to be an atoning sacrifice so there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no fellowship. No forgiveness, no fellowship. Atonement needs to take place to cover, and that's what atonement's dealing with, the sins of the people. We've seen how it was illustrated through these animals. And the priest did it daily. Like I said, every day. No vacation, no time off. It was a daily schedule. It was a weekly schedule. It was a monthly schedule. It was a yearly schedule. Each day began with a sacrifice. Each day closed with that sacrifice of another lamb as a burnt offering. The priest had to be dedicated to serve. They had to be cleansed from sin. And that's the emphasis of this chapter. Chapter 8, we saw the priest need to be clothed, right? To show the holiness of God. Chapter 29, we see they have to be cleansed from sin. Their, un, their unrighteousness has to be taken away. That's the only way the priest could represent the very beauty and glory of God. There are no sets of clothes that can do this. Those Old Testament clothes didn't do it. I need to be clothed with God's holiness. No animal can do that. No clothes can do that. My question is, what hope do I have? Remember at the very outset when we started with the people who are hopeless? The people who have had a terrible childhood and are living it out in their adult lives and they have no hope? They're corrupt. They're dirty. They're filthy. What hope do I have? Where do I go? We go to Zechariah chapter 3 and we finish with this. Look at this. Folks, this is incredible. Right here in an Old Testament prophecy book. Zechariah chapter 3. This is beautiful. This is a vision that Zechariah has. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And I believe that to be the very person of Christ. It's the angel of the Lord. A pre-incarnate Christ. And Satan. 
standing at the right hand to oppose Him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. In this vision, Joshua the priest has the priestly clothes on and what are they? Clean? No, they're filthy. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his hand. Head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes behold I will engrave its inscription says the Lord of hosts I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day in that day says the Lord of hosts everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree there's a lot to be said in this chapter there's a whole day we're going to get it in one minute Zechariah gives us a picture of what has to happen. There is our hope. He is a dirty, filthy, clad priest in this vision. He is like the nation of Israel that is dirty, corrupt, and filthy. The word filth there in the Hebrew and pardon me, but I'm going to bring it out what it means in the Hebrew because God is explicitly saying something here. It's vile. It's evil. Filthy. Dirty. How can I ever be cleansed? It's human excrement all over His clothes as He stands before the angel of the Lord. That is filthy. That's how he realizes that I can't be in the presence. What hope does he have? And there it is. It's the servant, the branch. It's Christ, the great high priest, who cleanses him. Take away the filthy garments. I've removed the iniquity and I'll clothe you with rich robes. That's what happens to us. We are priests. Because of the great high priest, who did the finished work because of the atoning blood of the sacrifice of the perfect sacrifice in Christ, we can now see ourselves clean by the blood of Christ. We are priests who stand before the Lord. We're cleansed. We're clothed. We're ready to serve Him. I'll put on my robes of righteousness. They've been put on. He finds delight in us as He dwells with us and blesses us because right there in the Exodus 29 passage, He gives the great promise that He is amongst them. 
I will meet with you, he says. It is most holy to the Lord. He's satisfied in that. A continual offering. He says, they'll know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. That's to the Israelites. That I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Verse 42, where I will meet you to speak with you, Moses, and then get this message to you. I'll dwell among you. We need to be clothed with Christ's righteousness. That was last week. This week, we need to be cleansed from our unrighteousness. Let's pray.